one of the reasons why I'm starting a podcast is in part to counter a lot of the, um, or not necessarily counter to, but, but to just be another voice advocating for a deeper rewilding for more systemic rewilding, because you could look at it as, um, a way of making yourself more comfortable in a horrible world that we live. But for me, it's about completely dismantling the horrible world and creating something new altogether. It's not just about feeling more comfortable here. Um, and I, that's kind of what I see as the, the more marketable side of rewilding is the, the barefoot shoes, the like consumer level products that you can buy to like hack your lifestyle to be more comfortable rather than like going all the way down to the programming and reprogramming from the beginning. You know what I mean? Um, and so for me, that's always what rewilding has been about. It's about tunneling out of the civilization, the prison of civilization and getting away from it, not being more comfortable within the prison of civilization. And I just don't see a ton of that stuff happening um, as much as I would like. And so to me, you know, that was my, the central focus of my book is that is like using rewilding as a, a sort of contemporary underground railroad away from the whole system of civilization and whatever that might look like. It might not look like, you know, the physical in terms of the underground railroad, it might not be like a physical place that you can escape to. It might be a physical place that you can escape to, but it's still right where you're standing. Um, and maybe a way of doing it invisibly under the watchful eye of the state, <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, um, and not that everybody has to go on that path or that that's, um, the one white right way to, uh, rewild, but rather that that to me is, um, you know, I was just watching the, uh, the clips from the democratic climate change. I want to call it a debate. I don't know what mm -hmm. it was round table or whatever on CNN, and um, they were like, you know, climate change. I think it was Bernie Sanders who said something like climate change is the enemy and we need to come together and fight the enemy together. And I was like, climate change is not the enemy. <laughs> the enemy is this power structure that's preventing us from coming together to deal with all of the problems that the power structure itself is creating. Right. So, you know, this idea of like placating you know, all of the solutions to the ills of civilization, all the things that it's causing are readily available. We have all of them. We know how to create regenerative food systems. We know how to do all of this stuff. It's just a matter of cultural momentum and power that is preventing those transitions from happening. The crises of climate change and ocean acidification and ecological die-off, those are all symptoms. That's of what I was going to say. Structure. Yes. <laughs> you know? Those aren't the enemy. Those are the symptoms of the enemy. The enemy is this system that we've had in place that has perpetually gotten worse and worse. You know, everybody wants to blame capitalism, but capitalism was just the latest, greatest thing that we thought was going to save us from all of these problems that had been caused. And all it did was amplify all of those problems even more. So, you know, this is other challenge of like anytime any new idea comes out that we think is going to somehow minimize our other problems, somehow it amplifies all of these other ones, you know. And it's because we're just not going back to the root. We're not going back far enough. So, yes, it would be great to get rid of capitalism. It would take us back to where we were several hundred years ago, which wouldn't be as bad as it is today. But it's still on this trajectory. There's no way it's going to necessarily go all the way back to the beginning. The world has changed. So we have to figure out and muddle our way through, um, you know, how to get rid of this power structure that's in place to something that's more regenerative. Um, and that, to me, is the essential aspect of rewilding. It's not going back to living as immediate return hunter-gatherers, um, but using immediate return hunter-gatherers as the baseline for human behavior and lifeway and trying to create something and work our way into a, another culture, a new culture that is inspired by and reflects a lot of the same principles and values from that structure. I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. I'm Jennifer Grayson here in Los Angeles, and welcome to our second to last episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. 
I'm really excited about our last two episodes because they both, from two entirely different perspectives, get to the core of what I had ultimately hoped to explore on the show. Not just how we can run away from the technology-inundated craziness of the modern world and live off-grid somewhere, but the big-picture look at civilization, its inherent unsustainability, and what we could reimagine beyond that in the future. My guest today, Peter Michael Bauer, has a lot to say about that. If you don't know his work, and you definitely should, he is the author of the book Rewild or Die, which first came out over 10 years ago. If you're just coming to this show and wondering, hey, you know, what's this rewilding movement about? Rewild or Die is where you should start. It's it's a really short read, and yet it's one of those life-changing books that will stay with you. And if you have read it, I definitely recommend rereading it. It's one of those books that has a permanent place on my bookshelf and that I turn to all the time. And that's saying a lot because those of you who know me know I am a super minimalist with a library of about 20 books. Um, I'm a big fan of public libraries, but anyway, I digress. The tone of that book, Rewild or Die, can be intense at times. We don't delve it into it here, but Peter actually credits the book to an alter ego named Urban Scout, which you can read more about on his website, petermichaelbauer.com, as well as hear about in his new podcast called The Rewilding Podcast. His Instagram handle, by the way, is at petermichaelbauer if you want to scroll through his work while you're listening to this, um, as long as you're not driving. So anyway, I wasn't sure what to expect in this interview and talking with him, but As you will hear, Peter is actually very kind and open, as well as very funny too. So enjoy this episode. Please check out his new The Rewilding podcast, especially since this one is ending. And I will be back on January 2nd with our finale. Peter Michael Bauer is the founder and director of Rewild Portland, the annual North American Rewilding Conference and author of the book Rewild or Die. He has been a catalyst of rewilding since the early 2000s. He lives in Portland, Oregon, where he weaves baskets from invasives in his spare time. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So you just got back from an off-grid trip to the Olympic Peninsula. I know you told me in an email you felt very refreshed. So can you just tell me, how how was your trip? So what does it look like when one of the catalysts of rewilding goes <laughs> off grid? Um, yeah, you know, I had never, it's it's funny. I live in Portland. Portland is like, we're always joking. Uh, ha- you know, it's a serious joke, but it's a thing where when you're living in these urban environments, they're like vacuums. They extract all the resources from the country and suck them into the center, the urban center. And in a sense, it's like an energetic vacuum. So when you're here, it's hard to get out. And when I've lived off grid or when I've lived outside of Portland in different places, it's almost impossible to get anybody who's living in Portland to come and visit me, right? That's one of the like challenges of off grid living is you're like, why doesn't, why don't people come out here? People end up moving back to the city because there isn't a lot of culture or community outside of these urban centers. Um, obviously that's not the case in everywhere and all that, but that's one of those like constant problems that everybody has. Um, so now that I live in Portland, um, I have to just get out as much as I can. I basically, and, and Portland is, you know, it's not the city I grew up in. It, it is uh, huge now. There's traffic. It's worse than LA traffic in Portland. Um, they didn't plan for this growth. Uh, it's it's basically not a place I want to live anymore, but I'm just essentially financially trapped here. But um, so I try to get out as much as possible. In my whole life, I've never been in the Olympic Peninsula, even though I've born and raised in Portland. Um, Washington, I think the, the state of Washington is kind of like um, how like the United States just kind of ignores that Canada is above us. You know, we don't really think about it that often, sort of this weird self-centered aspect of the country. I think Washington is kind of like that a little bit for me. Like when I was a boy scout, we went camping all over Oregon, but even though we're like right on the Washington, Oregon border, we never really went up to Washington. So it was just never really in my peripheral. Um, so I've never been there, but I have lots of friends who live there now. Um, and we went out and went exploring my girlfriend and I, um, went up to, you know, a couple of things I like to do when I travel is I look at museums, especially, um, those that are controlled and owned by native people. So I'd never been to the Macaw museum before, which is phenomenal. It's like $6 to get in. Um, you're supporting their tribe. I think they should actually increase the money, but whatever. I, I you know, I don't know how else it's funded, but, um, the museum is incredible. I've known, uh, a lot about Northwest coast culture being part of Portland and um, learning Chinook Wawa here in town from um, members of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ron. 
I've been um, a participant with the Cathlopodal Plank House across the river in Ridgefield, Washington, which is a, a replica of a traditional cedar plank house um, built on or near the village site that was once there that is used still today by um, the multiple tribes that live in this area. So I knew a lot about that stuff, but going into that museum was a totally different experience. Um, it, it's just a phenomenal thing. And, and to be able to see these tools. So the story of the museum is pretty incredible. There was a landslide in like the 70s and it exposed um, an old village site on the embankment of the ocean. And the village was covered thousand years ago or something like that. But it was a landslide that had covered the village and left everything completely pristine. So they were pulling out cedar hats and, you know, all of these tools. They pulled out like 50,000 artifacts over the span of like 10 years. Oh, wow. It was like uh, yeah. Pompeii. Exactly. Yes. It is the Northwest Coast Pompeii. Nobody really knows about this. You know, it's not, <laughs> which kind of blows my mind a little bit. I mean, it wasn't an entire city in the way that Pompeii was. It was a village site, which was smaller. It wasn't a volcano. It was a landslide. So I think there's some like maybe romanticization that happens with volcanoes and giant cities and stuff like that. But essentially, it's a it's like a Northwest Coast Native American Pompeii, right? So you have 50,000 artifacts and a lot of them are on display in the museum. Anyway, for me to go through and look at that and be able to connect with the culture that's here, support them and then learn other ideas and techniques for the ancestral skills that I work with uh, was invaluable. So that was probably the highlight of my trip for sure. Um, that's amazing. I actually thought you were going to say you were like living in a tent somewhere. <laughs> and that was the yeah. highlight of your trip, like staring at the stars. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, so the next day, so, okay, here's a cool, cool thing, right? We're at the, the museum and, um, I'm looking at their plank house design. So, you know, plank houses are very similar to like a Viking longhouse or like the Iroquois longhouses and stuff like that. There's this weird thing where across this, um, you know, across the globe in this one uh, latitude of area, you see all of these different indigenous people building longhouses of some kind, right? And it's usually coastal regions of this latitude. So that's kind of fascinating in and of itself. And then there's this amazing diversity across the, the globe with these types of shelters, but they're all kind of similar in certain ways. Um, going to the Macaw Museum was really interesting because their plank houses are totally different than the Chinookan plank houses that are right here around um, the Multnomah, well, you know, um, the Columbia and Willamette River, the, ch the plank houses here are totally different. And so going there and seeing the plank house and seeing their design, I was like, oh, this is fascinating. And they had this whole irrigation system that they created um, uh, for water runoff from the roof that was lined with whale bones. And they have like some examples of it built into the museum. So you can see that like they had these trenches around their houses that would funnel water out. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. Like, why would they have these here? Why would they have these irrigation systems here and, um, you know, not have them in the Portland area? So anyway, that, that followed that away, followed that question away, right? The next day, um, we hiked in, backpacked into Shai Shai Beach, which is like just a gorgeous um, oceanside beach. And uh, you have to backpack in in this way and... Um, yeah, it's a weird parking situation. You have to like park away and then walk to the trailhead and you're like paying somebody in their house to park their like driveway to park in there. Anyway. Okay. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's interesting. It felt kind of like Hawaii actually. The whole, the whole Macaw reservation had a very similar vibe to me, um, uh, that Hawaii did in terms of it being like native controlled. Um, and I hadn't really experienced that in the Portland area because the reservation is pretty far from Portland. So I hadn't really been to like a very native controlled area until I was in Hawaii, um, which was amazing. And also, you know, again, there I'm going to museums and going to native uh, stores that are, there's a store in Hawaii called native intelligence. I went there and bought some basketry books from them. And um, anyway, in terms of like tourism, for me, it's about going, I'm not, I don't want to support necessarily the States that are occupying spaces, but the native people who are within those states that's still their land. I want to figure out ways that I can um, give back to them for traveling through their their space. And also, um, there's a lot of opportunity for cross-cultural dialogue and connection there, too. So anyway, um, so I had this experience at the Macaw Museum. I'm like wondering, why are there these trenches? We back back out to Shai Shai Beach, which is like, you know, it's still Macaw territory, but it's just at the boundary of their reservation. So you walk out and it's National Forest. Um, and we set up our camp. We kind of hang out on the beach, walk around, take some pictures, 
Um, I'm looking at, you know, we're picking salal berries and gathering some firewood and stuff. And um, we stay there for the night. It's fine. When I go camping, there's, I'm, I don't put, like there's different, different ideas of what I'm doing. I'm not necessarily going to always just be like, I'm going into a survival situation, this camp out, or I'm going into a minimalist camping situation. Like for the most part, when I go camping, I just kind of do everything. I'm exploring it. Um, and in particular, I use modern gear unless it's like specifically I'm going out to practice ancestral skills. So like on a trip around the peninsula for me, I'm just going to bring modern camping gear, right? Like a tent and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of that stuff isn't really built for real wilderness, uh, weather. <laughs> and so we get the shy, shy beach. We set up our camp. We have a nice day. It's sort of hot and cloudy while we're there. Then the next day comes and a storm rolls in. And it just starts pouring rain, like pouring, 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 pouring rain. And I decide I'm going to get a fire going because I haven't done a fire in the pouring rain in a long time. So I, I'm playing around with fire. I'm using like um, uh, I had gathered on the beach. I saw some cedar bark. So I had gathered that and some cottonwood bark. It was all wet. So I had shredded it and kind of lashed it fluffily together into a fluffy cord and hung it high up in a tree all day. So it'd get some air and try to dry it out a little bit. Uh, but it had started raining, so it had gotten wet again. But I just took like um, I took a bunch of hemlock sap and scraped it from the tree and smothered it into the tinder bundle, so it would basically be a, ca- a candle. Mm-hmm. And I got that lit with a, just a regular lighter match or something, and had a little flame going. Used that to dry out the little twigs I got. Used that anyway. I had using like bulk help as a um as an air blowing thing. So I could get concentrated air blowing onto the fire without having to like crouch down. And um, that worked super well. So I was just kind of experimenting with materials, got the fire going. Um, but in this whole half hour goes by, it's pouring rain. I've got this fire going. I'm like, you know, I, I after the first five minutes, I've got a nice bed of coals. I know it's going to last. I can just kind of keep protecting it and doing these little things to keep it going, drying out the next layer of wood that's going to go on and all that. But in the meantime, there's this pool of water building up all around the tent and eventually our tent is like a third of it is in this puddle so we drag it to another spot and that starts filling up and there's basically like inches <laughs> of water on the ground now and it's still coming like it's still pouring down rain and you know we're just like we we didn't this gear is not for this type of situation it's like 7 30 at night um you know and i'm thinking in my head all we would really need here to make this work is a bigger tarp like a lot of the rain flies for these little tents just kind of wrap poorly around them and they're for like misty rain or a little bit of rain they're not for like this heavy downpour um yes i know that from experience right yeah (laughs) yeah so you know if i had had a big so i'm in my head i'm thinking if i had had a bigger tarp with me i would have just built a bigger tarp and then maybe like if i dug trenches around the tent that would have gotten the water to run away and as i'm thinking this i'm seeing these trenches lined with whalebone from those plank houses and realizing (laughs) right the the rainfall here that's why you have these trenches built the rainfall so then when i got home after the trip i google you know rainfall and shy shy beach gets like 120 inches a year or something like that whereas portland gets like 42 right so in terms of seeing a seeing this thing at the museum wondering why then going out and like actually having a little bit of an experience outside and thinking about this thing that happened and how would i have solved it and seeing how beautifully it was solved by the people who live there permanently you know um it's just that's the kind of thing that i really get a lot out when i'm traveling to a different place or even when i'm just like going out out of the city i want to absorb as much as i can and so just like having that experience of, you know, playing around with fire and then realizing that, you know, we, I don't have a shovel to dig a trench. I could have used a digging stick. Night was falling. We ended up hiking out uh, and just leaving because <laughs> it was just there was no I mean, the entire ground was covered in, you know, it was three inches of water everywhere. There was no place to have a tent. Um, and so we got everything packed away just as it was rising to that point. Um, and we just weren't prepared for that situation. And it's one of those things where. Again, if I had gone into this situation being like, this is a, I'm going to test my skills. It's one thing. If I'm going on a vacation where I'm trying to just like enjoy myself and not push to myself to the limits, it's going to be a different experience every time. So I, we, we were just like, we're not, this isn't why we're here. Yeah. You know? Next time you'll go with the shovel. 
and a tarp and a tarp, right, exactly. and, a tarp. And, then it, and then it won't even happen you know like yeah so there's also just a un- understanding what environments and how to be more prepared for them and stuff like that just so you don't have to be stuck in those situations yeah so um, i know i know people listening to this right now are are picturing your life there and you, you've talked about using hemlock sap and and kelp to start fires and you speak a native language and you're very immersed in this world and so i i just want to ask you which is something that I struggle with all the time. Like, how do you explain your life and what you do and rewilding to people who know nothing about it? Because I think a lot of people listen to this and they think, well, it's about going out into the wilderness or it's about native cultures. And so, and this is something I I personally really struggle with. I haven't, in two years of doing this podcast, I don't have a clean answer to people who know. What do you say to people who know nothing of this world? (laughs) Well, you know, after doing this stuff for 20 years, I still don't have a good answer to that. People are always like, what's your elevator pitch for rewilding? And it's like, it's not something that you can really build an elevator pitch for. And if you do, it's going to do it a disservice because it's a complete, it's like learning a whole other language. It's, and in order to understand that language, you have to unlearn things, right? Like Miles Olson's book, Unlearn Rewild. There are things we have to unlearn in order to understand what rewilding is or relearn or learn for the first time. So, you know, when people are like, what do you do? You know, even my, not everybody understands. They'll think I'm like into survival skills, which is a small section of what I do. And in fact, it's the least thing I'm, the thing I'm interested in the least is survival skills. Um, Ancestral technology is more interesting to me, but also like transition technology and just regenerative uh, place-based technology is where I'm leaning now with my language, but you know, we're just constantly changing in my mind how to talk about rewilding. Um, and it's especially challenging when rewilding has all these other meanings and stuff like that too, that people that might've already heard, or they might be more familiar with a different aspect of it. Um, or, and they, and they don't necessarily understand the, what might be considered more radical side of it, uh, in terms of dismantling civilization or understanding that the society that we live in is fundamentally unfixable you know we cannot fix this it is broken from the foundation so we have to go all the way back down to the foundation and start over um and people that's a hard thing to understand and especially the language around it right like if i say the word agriculture for example which i have a very specific meaning when i say agriculture And it comes from the way I use the word agriculture comes from anthropology, which essentially just means, um, you know, people who are getting 50 to 60 percent of their food through farming that includes tilling the soil. Um, But when I say agriculture, people often just think it means gardening or, you know, if, if farming is another word people use for agriculture, they don't understand all of the types of subsistence strategies that exist. And they also don't understand um, that agriculture could be a smaller part of what somebody does. But once you call somebody an agriculturalist, it's 50 to 60% of their subsistence is coming from basically tilling the soil and making a monoculture. So trying to educate people even just around like one word, right? And that's one concept of dozens that all interweave and create uh, the lens that rewilding is to me, rewilding is like a lens, a way of looking at, uh, history and the world and being able to make decisions based on this lens. Uh, it's one, one of the ways I describe rewilding to people. So if that requires kind of like learning these words over again, um, that's going to be challenging, right? So people have to be open to that. They have to be interested or curious at the minimum. And if they aren't, Um, I really can't educate them on what it means other than to just be like, we're learning from prehistory. You know, humans have lived on the planet for 3 million years. They did it without creating the Anthropocene extinction or the sixth extinction. Why, what were they doing during that time? That's that didn't make them build this right. That didn't create the situation that we're in now. And that this situation is very recent. So it's worth studying that first three million years and implementing those strategies as a solution to the problems that we have today. So so let me ask you the question then a different way. Uh, What what's wrong with civilization? 
because that's something I come up against too. So I right. say, you know, you start to talk about the rise of agriculture 10,000, 12,000 years ago and the rise of civilization and cities and people don't actually, it's hard, it's hard to open people's eyes to what's inherently wrong with that. So maybe you could right. just talk about civilization for a little bit. Yeah. So even that word is again, one of those words that people um, within civilization have conflated humanity the word humanity and civilization together. It's one of the reasons I don't like the term Anthropocene because anthro is humans and that means that it's a human changed environment, but humans didn't, humanity didn't change the environment, civilization, agriculture. Uh, that's the cultures. Those societies are the ones that changed, not humanity. So there's this reframing of what civilization means. And, you know, even if you look up the dictionary definition of civilization, it's a culture that has writing. Um, they use like terms like advanced uh, social complexity. Those are all, um, you know, it's like the the old saying: conquerors write the history. They write the history books. Civilization. The definition of civilization was written by people of civilization, not indigenous people or hunter gatherers that are looking on at civilization, right? Their definition might, might be a completely different thing. They might see what is happening in a completely different way than the people that are within that society. The second thing is those people who are writing that are coming up with dictionaries are probably wealthy, educated people, not the people on the ground, the slave labor, all of that kind of stuff that makes civilization possible. So when they write in social complexity in the definition, instead of slavery and hierarchy, uh, <laughs> you can see the, like the, the, how the language there is used to manipulate the definition to be this thing that is like um, that sounds good and beneficial as opposed to something that is um, detrimental or harmful to humans. So, you know, when I look at that definition and I see social complexity, I read it as slavery and hierarchy because that's what we know fuels civilization and agriculture. Um, so when I look at civilization, there's this cascade effect that that is from my perspective, it's an ecological phenomenon. Civilization is an ecological phenomenon. It's a thing that occurs when humans practice full-time agriculture. Again, that's 50 to 60% to anything above that. Um, and that includes pastoralism to live a sedentary life where it causes a population explosion that eventually leads to social inequality and ecological collapse. Um, and I have a better, more succinct definition of that in my book, Rewild or Die. But that is essentially how I perceive civilization as somebody looking sort of as um, an alien or a, an alien anthropologist looking down at the planet and seeing how these societies function um, and seeing the feedback loops that they get into and how they are presented like geographically and biologically on the planet. So to me, it's uh, civilization is the same as like a natural fire or a, a natural disaster, a catastrophe. And right now, you know, there's another person I heard once say civilization is like a heat engine where we're deforesting regions, tilling the soil, which causes all of the carbon to go into the air. Uh, one of the biggest producers of uh, one of the biggest like reasons of carbon in the atmosphere is from tilling the soil and from soil going into the atmosphere because prior to tilling you have perennial grasses that have like roots that go 60 feet down and, and store more carbon than old growth trees you know old growth old growth trees have a, essentially a limit to how much carbon they can store and once they reach a certain age they kind of stop storing as much carbon obviously everything that was in them is stored um and when they fall over and become a nurse log that's going to get turned into other things but uh, you have soil loss and deforestation as these two huge motivating factors for climate change because they're getting, you know, you're, you're not only are you removing these plants that take carbon out of the atmosphere, you're removing them from the soil and from the ecosystems by like burning them. Um, and then that's the other thing, right? We have energy burning all of the fossil fuels. All those things came later. There's a book called Plows, Plagues and Petroleum that kind of talks about how humans, quote unquote, took control of the climate at the agricultural revolution, which was the time in the Neolithic, the be beginning of the Neolithic period. Neolithic means new stone age. Um, and that period was when some humans started farming 
um, in different places around the world. And we see this, what I would call ecological phenomenon happen in every single one of those, where once you become a full-time farmer, you have this population explosion and an eventual crash. And during that explosion, you have accumulation of wealth that leads to inequality. And then during that collapse, people have to figure out other things to do, other ways to limit growth. And I think there's, you know, in my some of my classes, I talk about, um, you know, that native people here in the quote unquote new world had a lot of limits to growth built into their cultural systems because our environment, for whatever reason, who knows what 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 happened, but we stopped as a as many humans stopped having limits to our growth. Um, hunter gatherer societies have a lot of limits to their growth, and a lot of them are imposed on them because it makes sense strategically as a hunter gatherer. Um, you have to carry children from infancy until you know several years. So intentionally, people space out their children a lot more. So as soon as you see people in sedentary lifeways like agriculturalists, they're no longer spacing out uh, the frequency with which they have children. They're having them back to back to back to back, partly also because farming requires so much more labor. It's a, it's a very labor-intensive lifestyle than hunting and gathering does. And so you need farmhands. So you have a sedentism that allows you to have babies a lot sooner and you have an economic incentive to have laborers on your farm as farmhands. So there's just all kinds. That's just like one example of one of the things that leads to uh, population growth. As soon as farming happens, it's called um, in anthropology, it's called the Neolithic demographic transition. Yeah, <laughs> well, like, I, I, I actually talk about that quite a bit just within well, regards to um, the book that I wrote, because, you know, once you have farming, it it makes it more biologically po possible too to have more children, and then you start having the rise of much later on people introducing breastfeeding substitutes. That's not possible without agriculture. Right. But you're right. right. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of limits on certain hunter gatherer societies that extended beyond biology. Like they, some cultures have post birth like sex taboos. Like you literally mm. can't have sex for three years mm. after having a child, and that was wow. specifically to make sure that they were able to you know, sustain a population given the resources right. in their right. area. Yeah. Um, so I totally get that. Uh, you know, one of the things I just want to ask you about, this is such a complex topic. And I, that's one of the reasons why I love your book so much is because you distill it down into all these very succinct chapters where you talk about each issue, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, right. I, I'm just going to say everyone should just read this book. If you want to, if you want to know anything about <laughs> rewilding, just read the book. <laughs> But one of the things I, one of the discussions I get into a lot with people is this idea, you know, as we talk about rewilding and the inherent unsustainability and destructiveness of civilization, people have a hard time believing that we somehow haven't been destined to go on this trajectory all along, right? That like, right. this isn't some kind of path of advancement. So right. I know this is a big question, but like, how do you explain that maybe this wasn't inevitable? Um, or was it inevitable? A, I mean, what's, what is the point we're at now? Is, is it about going back in time? So, you know, uh, <clears throat> what you're, there's a level of like determinism in my perspective, but not necessarily determinism with progress. So the idea that we've progressed technologically and these, that we're getting more and more quote unquote advanced and complex, um, there's a lot to kind of deconstruct in there. One is the Bushmen didn't create the sixth extinction. They're still living as far as we can tell the way they did for a long time with interaction. Obviously their cultures have changed. They've in, been in interaction with civilization and agricultural peoples and pastoralist peoples for a long time, probably a thousand years or something. Right. So there's this hunter gatherer. We can't look at the Bushmen today as if they're exactly how hunter gatherers and immediate return were living 10,000 years ago or 12,000, 20,000 years prior to the Neolithic revolution. Um, but what we can look at them and see is another trajectory uh, for humanity, that, that this didn't have to happen and it didn't need to happen. And it could have just been this, right? And for them, that's the way, that's their way of life. If you ask them if they would want to be, you know, a part of a civilization, 
there's a huge rejection globally from immediate return hunter gatherers who are who are come in contact with civilization. Um, and that is in a large part due to the labor, again, the labor intensity and all the weird taboos and stuff that come along with becoming part of civilization. And the frontier has been largely controlled by missionaries who have, you know, done massive amounts of damage to indigenous societies by tricking them using um, tools and taking away elders and separating children from elders and refusing them to allow their languages, all kinds of like horrible schooling processes and things um, that are required in order to quote unquote civilize uh, people who do not live in civilization. And it's an important distinction to make right here is that when I say civilization, the biggest problem with that word is that people think that that means civil society. So if if I say that uh, the Bushmen aren't a civilization, that might make some people upset because their framework is that civilization is a society is like the epitome of society, and they think I'm being uh, prejudiced or or racist or something by saying that there is no civilization there but it's because to me the definition of civilization is not the same that they're using right the bushmen have civil society they don't have a civilization first of all like again even in the even in the dictionary definition of civilization it includes writing like if your society does not have writing you're technically not considered a civilization and that can that writing can come in many forms that's why like the mayans and aztec and stuff they had forms of writing and that's why they're considered civilizations. Whereas a lot of these other cultures that were like mound builders and stuff like that, people kind of sometimes call them civilizations and sometimes don't. Um, but the key, the key thing there being that when I use the word civilization, I'm not saying it uh, as, a, as a way of saying that people are uncivilized. Unless by uncivilized, we mean not part of civilization right. as a society, right? And you know, off, like uncivilized is a synonym for rewilding, and in, in certain from a certain perspective, where we're trying to undo the damage of civilization, which is why it's important to redefine, or not necessarily redefine, but look at civilization through a different lens that gives you a different picture of what it is. So, and just to clarify, what you're saying here really is that civilization, if I'm understanding correctly, is a society that is based in a, a very built up society based on the accumulation of agricultural monocrops. Is that right? That spirals out of control? I mean, versus Essentially, like, yes. Versus that, like the that, Bushmen that, who are a culture, who are an right. advanced culture. Is right. that the difference? Absolutely. Okay. So I wouldn't use the terms advanced. Even the word culture is um, interesting, I should say, because the word culture, like if you look through the etymology of it, the word culture means to till the soil. So back when, if you weren't tilling the soil, you weren't considered a culture. Wow. I forgot so, about that part in your book. Yes. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. It's so, so amazing you once you trace the... the <laughs> and I, I should say, you know, another fascinating thing about your book is that you talk about how even the English language, the way that it evolved was as a result of our agricultural society right. and everything it entailed, which I had right. never thought about before. Yeah which just blew me away. Yeah. So all of that stuff comes together. And when, when I'm trying to talk to people about the myth of progress uh, and the sort of like destiny of humans, the myth of destiny, uh, it's easy once you just say, well, the Bushmen didn't do anything. And we know that there's no real difference between humans biologically that would cause those differences. And there's a lot of like race essentialists and white supremacists who would think differently. But then at the same time, it's like, how could you be, how could you acknowledge it? Anyway, that, that's a whole other <laughs> can of worms. Um, but. Well, let's talk about, go ahead. I'm sorry. Before we, we could definitely talk about that. But before I just want to kind of like wrap this point in, which is yeah. in terms of the determinism, like this was inevitable. Um, anything. Everybody wants to blame um, what happened on one specific thing, right? So, you know, there's people who say, well, it was language that led it to this. It was fire that led to this, you know, humans domesticating fire. It was 
stone tool use. It was agriculture. It was food storage. You know, there's so many different factors that all intertwine here. Of course, everybody now says capitalism, right? But like, there's so many things that are going on. It's really hard to predict what the results would be and why they would even happen. So I don't think that this was destiny. I think that it's uh, environmental pressures that caused humans stress that then caused them to create some other thing. And it's like the this the woman of the um, woman who lived in a shoe. How does that go? Who had so many kids she didn't know what to do? <laughs> no, not that one. Oh, <laughs> uh, the, the who swallowed a spider. That's the one I'm thinking of. Oh yeah, <laughs> the <that> nursery. Just... <laughs> I don't think there's a shoe. Yeah, no, <laughs> two two separate ones. I'm conflating them in my yeah, head. Yeah. But you know, it's but like it keeps you, going and go. It's like you swallow the... the spider to get the fly. You know, you swallow the whatever to get the spider. Like once you go down that path, it becomes a positive feedback loop. So in that way, like determinism, it's like once a once a forest fire starts burning. It's going to burn until it reaches its environmental edge, until it reaches the point reaches the point of diminishing returns. So, if it burns out a patch, there's no more fuel for it. It dies down and it goes away. I think that civilization is a force of nature. Just humans, humans, we are as wild animals forces of nature, and together, all of us, in collaboration with all the other forces of nature on the planet, including other animals and plants, and wind cycles, weather cycles, gravity, all these different forces of nature kind of coalesce and create these different biological realities that we see. And so in terms of the determinism, I think that there was something that happened, it created some stress in some humans who responded in a certain way. But once that way gets started, it's like a match lighting a meadow on fire and the fire is going to burn until it reaches the point of diminishing returns. So in, from my perspective, culture is a force of nature, just like a forest fire. So it's going to burn until it doesn't have the fuel to do that or until, you know, we can figure out a way to limit our own growth. But sometimes that requires um, reaching the point of diminishing returns. So you see a lot of these other civilizations that have risen and quote unquote fallen um, and they reached points of diminishing returns and then cha changed their life ways and created cultural limits to growth which I think is one of the really interesting and exciting things about uh, the native, a lot of different native cultures in North America is looking at these different ways that they limited growth and that environmental ethic that we sort of project oftentimes onto native Americans as a whole. There's like coming from very specific societies that went through these trials already and came up with sophisticated cultural systems to tend the wild in a way that didn't lead to these big disasters. Um, and so to me, that's one of the more interesting things about looking at the delayed return and horticultural societies of the world that have been through these sort of rises, quote unquote, rises and falls. That's again, that's sort of like a anthropogenic or a, <laughs> um, what's the word I'm trying to, it's just a, a self-centered. It almost sounds like the name of a soap opera, rises, rises and falls. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a perspective from a civilization looking at another one, right? Like, it was rising, and then it fell. It sounds, it's it's a value state. It's a, a system that burned through all of its energy and collapsed, right? Uh, or that's even, a, that's even <laughs> a value statement, too. It's a system that burned energy and transformed, right? So um, even the idea of collapse is uh, like this sort of fear-based civilization perpetuating idea there will there's no collapse there's transformation um and obviously collapse is one way of looking at it so it's not like there's no collapse that's a perspective but also you can look at it from a transitional perspective as well and think of it just as as a transition rather than um you know into a different way of life yeah so that's interesting because you, you you do talk a lot about collapse in rewild or die so is that something that you've changed your way of thinking about in the 10 years since the book came out? Um, I think absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely one of the factors in looking at um, the language that we use and how that shapes our perspective on things. Um, because I got to say, I mean, there's almost a, there's definitely an undercurrent of, 
I don't, this is not the right word, but almost like an eco-terrorism in the book. <laughs> no, there, I mean, you say, Absolutely. call yeah. me a dreamer, but believing we can encourage collapse and rewild a dying planet feels like optimism to me. Um, right. And I don't necessarily disagree with that, but yet, you know, yes. that's definitely a that theme would, right in the book, right? Am, am I wrong? From the perspective of a state power that would not want to be taken out of power, it would look like terrorism. That's what they call terrorism, is people trying to change the power structure. That's why I said that, because I don't right. know a better word for it. Right. <laughs> right. So from my perspective, it's not terrorism. I'm not actually, I'm not like, there's no plotting. There's no, nothing like that. It's a theoretical framework from my perspective. Um, and the theoretical framework is this way of life is destroying the ability for us and our future generations. And when I say us, I mean, most humans and megafauna for us to exist in the future. Um, and the sooner that that transition occurs, the better for everything else after that. So encouraging the transition to another way of life might look like encouraging uh, the systems that hold up the power structure to be dismantled. And, you know, collapse is is the fearful idea that it would all come crashing down rather than, uh, you know, people are innovative. And when there is stress, that is when people actually change. And that is when they actually do things. There's a great documentary called The Power of Community, How Cuba Survived Peak Oil. And it's about how when the Soviet Union, quote unquote, collapsed overnight, um, Cuba lost half of its foil, uh, half of its oil imports overnight. So they had a, they're an, literally an island and it was in a sense an experiment. It wasn't an experiment, it was a reality. But if we look at that and how they innovated and how they responded, um, you know, the state did a lot of things to try to maintain its monopoly on violence. And it did in the end because we still have a global state structure of trade and capitalism and all those things. But the innovative stuff that was going on, you know, most Cubans, the average Cuban lost 20 pounds during that five-year period after the Soviet Union collapsed. And that's because they had they lost access to food. Now, not everybody was starving to death, right? They lost access to food and they acted swiftly to reimagine how they could get the things they need without importing them and getting them from oil. So they had like you know, there were a few old like oxen farmers and stuff that were all of a sudden breeding oxen, training people to use oxen for farming because they couldn't get gasoline to power their tractors anymore. And so, uh, you know, in terms of transition, like collapse is a scary concept because there are overnight things that can destroy, you know, looking at climate change and hurricanes. Right. Those are overnight destructive events. Right. But long term. We're looking at a transition, not a collapse. Like you asked, when did the Roman Empire collapse? There was no date. You know, it, the, it was a hundred, 200 year transition of power to something else where they lost power. The resources that they were able to steal from everybody else got stolen and then there wasn't anything left to spend. And so over the period of a couple of hundred years, Rome the, as a centralized power diffused and it became, you know, the Roman Catholic Church. And then that became all of the different states and all these things. But the idea of this central power collapsing, that's not exactly what happened. It just transitioned and transformed into something else. So that's one of the things that I would look at my book and and reframe the idea of collapse because collapse isn't, you know, there's emergency disasters. There's disasters like hurricanes that are part of the transition that we're going through. And that is a, uh, a much more thing to be afraid of and prepared for are those overnight transitions that it's ripping a bandaid off. Um, but those are oftentimes the ones where people, again, just become super innovative and actually change their lifestyle because they can no longer, they've reached a point of diminishing returns for whatever era that is. And they have to come up with new ways to live immediately. Um, yeah, you're right. And, because by focusing on collapse, it makes people just think about snapping into survival mode and then you right. don't think about what comes next right like what could be better right yeah so tell me what so what are you doing now with rewild portland um so in in thinking along those lines you know rewild portland is a way of creating social connections around place-based traditions and regenerative traditions so 
Um, you know, we do a free class on the last Saturday of every month sponsored by Portland Parks, where we provide public programming um, around different areas of rewilding. And we tend to trade back and forth between three overall themes of wild food, um, crafting, and a cultural skill. So for example, wild food, we would do this month, we're doing acorn processing. So how to turn acorns into um, flour for baking into bread and other things. Uh, and, and then for a craft, we might do something like cordage, you know, how to make rope out of natural fiber, like stinging nettle. And then for a cultural skill, we might do something like mentoring children or animal tracking or one of those like invisible skills that isn't something you create with the hands or that you're harvesting from the land. We've got to trade all around and do different things. But in each of those, our focus isn't just on the thing itself. Um, our focus is on creating the social container for those things and then also the regenerative aspects of them. So bringing people together from different walks of life to process acorns into flour, but not just um, an extractive mentality. In order to have acorns, we have to tend to the oak savannas that exist here. So we give out baby oak trees for people to plant, to think about the future people who might be eating acorns um, and to, in a sense, restore aspects of the anthropogenic landscape that was managed here for 5,000 years by the Kalapuya. Uh, but oaks are also an interesting thing because they're cross-cultural. Anywhere across the Northern Hemisphere, you have people eating acorns, especially like traditional place-based people, uh, hunter-gatherers. And so it's a way of bringing all these different people together from different society, different culture, backgrounds, but we all share this particular wild food as a lineage. And then we talk about the place that we're in now and how we need to tend this place here too, not just to honor the people here, but also the food as well and the future generations that are coming. And then, you know, then we look at stinging nettle for cordage. Again, stinging nettle is a plant that grows all across the Northern hemisphere. There's many different varieties of it. The word nettle itself comes from nets because it was made uh, into nets in Europe. And so again, here, there were net fishing nets here coming full circle back to that macaw fishing, um, the macaw museum the state did not allow macaw people to fish with nets because they said there was no historical evidence of them ever doing so. Um, one of the things, one of the artifacts they found in that village site was a net, a fishing net made out of stinging nettle. Wow. They were able to partner with the archaeologists and sue the government in order to get their fishing rights with nets back, and they won. Wow. So anyway, you know, in terms of like all of the stuff and looking at it from this this perspective. You know, what are the things that connect us all across time and space to a place-based lifestyle that can connect us here and now today? And that's one of the things that we, since we only have 12 months, 12 programs, one, one Saturday a month, we try to really focus on those aspects that can bring all these different people together. And then as best we can have representatives from here, native people from here talking about those particular plants, their relationships with them here, and then talking about history and other parts of the globe um, that are relatable. Did you ever think that you would be running an organization sponsored by Portland Parks? <laughs> um, you know, when I was 16, uh, uh, I used to be a lot more like I used to do a lot more meditation and, and um, spiritual type practices than I do now. I, my, my, my mental and um, my mental practices and spiritual practices that I, if you call them that now are very different than what they were when I was a teenager. But I did this thing when I was a teenager where a friend of mine had me go through this meditation. Um, and you were supposed to envision like four doors and, you know, each door represented a different thing. And one of them was like 10 years in the future. And I'm 16. I've just read Ishmael. I've read Tom Brown Jr. I'm like, civilization is going to collapse tomorrow. I'm going to learn to survive <laughs> the collapse in 10 years. I'm going to be living with like a tribe of people. I would not use that terminology. Now I would be with a tribe of people out in the woods, you know, thrive or thriving or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I think we've all been there. Yeah. So I go through this, you know, and I'm 16, I'm, I'm imagining these things. I'm really there and present in my mind. And I go through this door and I walk in and it's an office room with a computer and a bookcase behind it. And I remember like seeing that and like coming out of the meditation and being like, you know, it was really weird. I walked through that door and I saw this and I knew that it had to be bullshit because obviously in 10 years, I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be living in the woods, you know? 
And like, as I'm speaking to you right now, I'm standing in front of a computer <laughs> that looks similar to that <laughs> with a bookshelf next to me. It's been, you know, 20 years. But it's just this weird thing where like, I never thought, I did not understand at that time the challenges um, of becoming fully integrated into whatever rewilding is. Um, and I think, you know, when I was 21, I went and I did a vision quest with a particular group of people that lead them. And uh, in that, there was, I think the biggest lesson I walked away from that was realizing I was never going to have this uh, hunter-gatherer lifestyle that I thought I was going to have. And it was wow. this very intense experience where I was like, that's not me. That's not what I'm, that's not my purpose here. And it's not really possible for me. And coming out of it, um, you know, forever changed the trajectory of what I was trying to do. So I don't know, you know, it's funny because I just, um, I'm friends with Wonia who was on Alone, the Alone show on History Channel. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed her for the podcast that I'm putting together. And I'm just like, the types of skills that she has in her lifestyle is so much more what I would have wanted myself to be and lived and still do and maybe will attain someday, but instead took this other path of like creating this organization in an urban context of all places as well. And um, getting more into the the systemic types of and philosophical side of rewilding rather than like practical application. And there's something to be said about that because really the more <laughs> I, I wrote an essay once that's not published, but it's called rewilding is a crime. And uh, <laughs> it's related to the the title of my book. Rewild or die was skate or die. Skateboarding is not a crime is like a, you know, a t-shirt and, and sign and stuff because eventually when skateboarders would like be up on pavement and grinding on building surfaces and stuff, you started seeing these signs being posted that said no skateboarding. Right. Uh, and so they, they became a slogan. Skateboarding is not a crime. Um, Thanks for the background for the nerds of us who grew up in Connecticut <laughs> and didn't grow up skateboarding right, yeah. in cities. Yeah. So, you know, uh, rewilding is a crime. Like if you really want to go full on and take it to the fullest extent, you're abandoning civilization for something else, which means you're no longer integrated into this society fully. And when you do that, you become an outlaw. And uh, you know, that is the price you pay for freedom in that regard, if that is something that you want fully. And so there's this interplay. Um, there's a really good, good book, a couple of good books by James C. Scott, The Art of Not Being Governed and Seeing Like a State. And he basically outlines how the creation of state also create anti-state. And the what we think of as like hill people, hillbillies that live in the hills outside of essentially taxation from river valley states. Um, you know, states will draw lines. These are our borders. But then you go up into the mountains and nobody knows what country they're a citizen of or didn't until recently with oil technology being able to actually enforce a lot of those lines. But, you know, prior to 100 years ago, hill people were not citizens of any states. They had their own autonomous regions. And that's kind of what his book, The Art of Not Being Governed, is about Somia, which is a, a mountain region in um, Asia that spans seven countries. And the people of that region up until, you know, 100 to 50 years ago, didn't consider themselves part of any of the valley states, even though they were drawn on maps as if they were citizens of them. They didn't pay taxes. They weren't they didn't see the benefits, quote unquote, benefits of being a citizen of a state. Um, and so there's this weird sort of crux now, right, of like. There are benefits to being a citizen of a state and there are freedoms that you get by being an outlaw. And this is one of those re areas where I think left and right uh, politically. Come together sometimes, but in very different ideas. They're very different ideas of, of government getting in the way or something like this, you know, um, and what an outlaw, what being an outlaw should be or look like. Um, but I think of um, one of my biggest influences is this woman named Phoenicia Medrano, who's um, for 20 years lived in a horse-drawn covered wagon uh, in the Great Basin region of the United States, living off of wild foods and like essentially food stamps. <laughs> so she's this example of somebody who kind of lives as an outlaw, but also gets state benefits, this sort of like in-between type person. And those are the kind of people that 
um, citizens of the state who are, you know, tax paying people who are paying for protection. I mean, <laughs> this could get this can go down this whole rabbit hole of like, what is taxation? Taxation is uh, the oldest mafia scam in the world. We're going to give you an offer you can't refuse. You give us a portion of your income and we won't kill you. Right. We'll protect you. Right. You open a restaurant, you know, it's like the classic like Godfather movie or something. You open a restaurant. If you want your restaurant, quote unquote, protected, you have to pay a tribute uh, a tax to the organized crime syndicate. So we've just been doing it for so long that nobody remembers that it's actually theft because <laughs> everybody's, you know, anytime you're talking about taxes, people are like, well, how would you have roads? Right. How would you pay How for would you have roads? airports? How would you have a military? To right. And it's like none of that stuff was necessary. All of that stuff is used like the roads were literally created to make like the freeway specifically was created to make the military easier to disperse across and faster to disperse across a continent right. or a region or the state. Right. Like the Autobahn was designed to get military vehicles around the state as fast as possible. So when people are like, how would we pay for that? It's like, no, the reason those exist is to f continue to forcing everybody to pay for these things, right? Now, well, see, this again, is why I'm glad you are creating this podcast that I want you to talk about before <laughs> I run and go pick up my kids. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because I, wa I wanted, I want to take this deep dive and I want to know everything and you're the person to do it. I'm glad for our sake, you're not an outlaw in a covered wagon somewhere. <laughs> Because you're yeah. you're a brilliant communicator, um, and I know you know this is something I struggle with too. Because I really want to, I want to live somewhere in the wilderness, and I don't know if that's my path. But um, anyway, I'm just happy that that you are such an an amazing resource, and I just want to thank you for everything that you're doing. Thanks. So before we go, and before I run and pick up my kids from the Los Angeles Unified School District public school system, um, <laughs> tell us about the podcast. Where can we find it and when does it come out? Yeah, so in theory, it will come out in November. Um, and that's all dependent on how much I get done. But I'm, my goal is to create 10 episodes and then release them once a week and just do a, a short run 10 episode season to kind of test the waters of doing a podcast. Um, the main premise is going to be this sort of systemic analysis. You know, what is it? What does a hunter gatherer mean? What are what do we actually mean by that? What is uh, how to create something inspired by that um, and how to make this transition in a way that um, works for more people. You know, I, I'm not an advocate for running away to the wilderness. I don't care if people do that. That's what I want to do, but I don't advocate for it personally. I advocate for creating new economic systems inspired by the old ones. So that's essentially what my pad, my podcast will be like part outlaw <laughs> part, <laughs> you know, um, working the system, leveraging the system. Um, but definitely it's not going to be about ref cultural reform. It'll be leveraging the system to create something that will take the current system's place, um, which could look like working within the system and could look like whatever outlaw. <laughs> uh, but again, it's all a theoretical framework. I don't suggest anybody do any of this stuff. I'm just curious about how systems in the past have I, I don't look at myself as a, as like a revolutionary leader. I look at myself as like an anthropologist studying a, a topic and looking at how things might, and, and like a, a weather forecaster, you know, looking at how things might take shape and, you know, um, making suggestions like, well, it's going to be rainy tomorrow, wear a raincoat. Like that's the extent of what I would ever suggest, <laughs> you know, um, I, I really appreciated Daniel Quinn's um, perspective on that. When anybody anybody asked him for solutions, he or you know they they would say, "Oh, so you're saying to stop doing civilization?" He would say, "No, I'm like the Surgeon General. The Surgeon General didn't say stop smoking cigarettes. The Surgeon General said smoking cigarettes causes cancer." <laughs> and in that regard, I think I'm a little bit more of a stop smoking cigarettes <laughs> type of a person. Um, but I appreciate that kind of perspective of like, you know, not necessarily giving a solution because the solution isn't one solution. The solution is thousands of solutions. And the only way that people are going to come up with thousands of solutions is if they're not given a prescription. And it's called the Rewilding Podcast, right? Yes. Okay. We look forward to hearing awesome. more from you. <laughs> thank you so much for coming yeah, on thank today. You. 
Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please don't forget to leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head on over to my Instagram page. That's at JenniferGrayson1. As with every episode, the resources and links for the show are available at jennifergrayson.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damien Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll be back soon with a new episode.